Uh, my name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, and I just add my greeting to you being here today. And what a, an important hour we have already had together. You might take a look at your program just to see where we've been. We started off with a psalm that's a sojourner psalm. You trekking through this life? Picking up dust along the way? Needing a sense of connection with the eternal God? That psalmist approached the temple and was so overwhelmed with the idea of being able to enter into God's presence. He said, I, I marvel that I get to come through this gate and be where he is. Better is one day in this place with him than a thousand anywhere else. Then we went on to talk about what do we find when we come to the presence of God? What majesty? What awesomeness? What otherworldliness? And he would grant us access to himself. And what do we find when we encounter such brilliance? Grace. We're unworthy. We're broken. We're busted. We're sinful. We are condemned. And he extends grace. Grace that washes us of our sin. That saves us. And how does that happen? Oh, it's the blood. The price he paid. He took our punishment. He took our penalty upon himself. So this has been all about reminding us of who God is and who we are and that we get to know him, be with him, do life with him, be forever changed by him. Uh, the Bible says that that kind of reality, that kind of truth, that kind of word, if you will, the Holy Spirit of God seeks to implant in our heart so that it can take root and grow and change us. But the cares of this world tend to choke out that word, tend to distract, tend to minimize that awesomeness. And so it is no small thing, friend, when you think, I think I'll pray right now. Because when you say that, there's an unseen world full of God and his holy angels and servants and our enemy and his unholy servants all contending for our heart in that moment. Oh, you think you'll pray? And it is a battle. And if you lose that battle occasionally, you know it was no small battle. You think I'm going to read the scriptures. That's no small battle. All of heaven and earth. And all that is evil begins to war at you at that point. I think I'll go to church. I think I will attend a worship gathering. Friend, these things are all huge. They are all part of a, a warring for your soul, for your affection, for your heart, for your attention. And uh, what we're going to try to do today and the next few weeks is to distill that down to as simple a place as it can be. Because the fact of the matter is, it is a very complex world. We are inundated with complexity all the time. But the rest of the story is that life is simpler than we think. 
And what we're going to highlight over these weeks is that in its simplicity, there really is only one thing to know. Out of all the things that we can be about, there is really only one thing that is necessary. When it comes to all the the things to accomplish, there really is only one thing to do. And so we're going to uh, address that simplicity over these next few weeks and today talking about the one thing that you need to know. You have questions? This life is filled with questions. That's part of the complexity of it all. Who am I? Why am I? What's my future going to be? What's all the deal with my marriage? What's up with my children? What's up with my singleness? What am I supposed to understand and do and be around my career? What about issues beyond myself? Issues of unfairness and injustice, poverty, disease. And what about God? Who is He? What's He like? Why doesn't God do what I ask God to do? Well, we're going to get at this and begin to unpack it with a case study. And we're going to do that around the life of a man who was born blind. So I'm going to invite you today to imagine blindness. What would it be like to not just not be able to see, but never to have been able to see? And what kinds of questions would that raise for you in addition to everything else that we have presented? Why am I blind? Everybody else sees. Why is life so hard? Does God care about my plight? We could go on and on. Our case study is found in the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter. So let me encourage you to get your Bible, open it up, find chapter 9 for some of the best reading in the Bible. One of the best stories, one of the best case studies uh, that you'll have the privilege to get into. Because this is the story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. Some of you are familiar with the story. You'll recall that Jesus and his disciples were sojourning. They were traveling and they were on their way to the temple. And as they were approaching the gate to the temple, there sat a beggar. Uh, Probably had sat there many a day. Probably was fairly uh, known or recognized anyway by people who would go in and out of the temple because uh, beggars tended to want to get strategic places where they could beg, right? So that they would get good traffic pattern. And if you just had a meaningful experience with God, you might have a little more compassion and drop a coin on him, things like that. And uh, some had learned even a little bit of his story because it's known to others. This man's not only blind, but he was born blind. And so Jesus and his disciples began to go into the temple to worship. They passed the blind man. And we're told that Jesus understood in that moment that the heavenly father wanted to heal this man of his blindness. And so he stops and he curiously, curiously, spits into the dirt, makes a little mud, 
and goes over to the blind man and begins to apply it to his eyes. Now, of course, the blind man has no idea what's going on, who this is, what he's doing. And Jesus simply says to some others that are standing around, take this man over to the pool of Siloam and rinse his eyes. And so the man goes over to the pool of Siloam, rinses his eyes, and you just have to imagine this. For the first time ever, he sees water. For the first time ever, he sees his hands. He sees other people. He sees the sky. He sees the sun. He sees the magnificence of the buildings around him. And, of course, everyone that is watching this transpire are amazed and awed. This man has never seen and he is seeing now. How has this happened? What is going on? And as we get into the text that we're going to pick up in verse 8, we will see this poor man barraged with questions. He'll be asked questions within 30 verses, no less than nine times, most of which he has no answer for. They will ask him, how did this happen? I don't know. I just had mud on my eyes and I washed. Who did this? I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. Are you really the man who was born blind? Yes, I am. Are you really the man who was born blind? Yes, I am. The Pharisees come up. Who did this? I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. How did this happen? All I know is I had mud in my eyes and I washed my eyes and now I can see. Was this man a sinner? I don't know. Was he a holy man? I don't know. What do you know? And what he knows is what you need to know. Let's look at the text. Picking up in verse 8. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Is it he? Others said, No. But he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, Well, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, I don't know. I guess he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, 
We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Here's what he does know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. And friend, I'm suggesting to you in all of life's complexity, with all of life's questions, that is the one thing you must know. Were you blind? And do you now see? Because the reality is, you're blind. You say, well, you just lost me. What are you talking about? Of course, the text is playing back and forth between physical realities and spiritual realities. We live in that kind of dichotomy between physical realities and spiritual realities. And the point of the text is to say in that physical way where the man was blind is representative of, in a spiritual way, how we are all blind. Blind to God. Blind to the things of God. Blind to the entire invisible spiritual realm and spiritual world and all the things that are happening on the positive, good, holy side and on the negative, unholy side. We're blind to all those things. Why? Because we're dead. The Bible says that every person must be born twice. You're born physically the first time. And you come into this world and you're given a body that has physical capabilities. And with those physical capabilities, you can see, you can hear, you can smell, you can taste, you can touch. Now, if that physical body dies... What happens? You lose all those capacities. Your person doesn't die. Your body dies. And you no longer can see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And it's the very same thing spiritually. And once you have been born physically and you're alive in this world, the Bible says you're also dead spiritually. Unless you are born again or born a second time. And until you are born a second time, born spiritually, born from above, born by the Spirit of God coming to live inside of you. Until that happens, you're blind. You're deaf. You, you have no sense of touch in spiritual ways. We're all blind. And we're all Dead in our sins and trespasses, and we will all be dead for all eternity, meaning separated from God, unless something happens and intervenes. 
But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, we really don't believe that. The fact of the matter is, like almost all Americans, we believe that it all comes down to good people go to heaven, bad people don't. That's what we really believe. Even though we have awareness or some familiarity with what the Bible says. And we spent some time a few months ago, we spent weeks, talking about how good's good enough. That the good enough theory is faulty. Nobody is ever good enough. Because in the first place, we don't know what the standard is. If we, if we want to uh, try to make it on the good enough standard, we don't know what that standard is. How good is good enough? You see, uh, you go, well, I, I do know this much about the Bible. I know the Ten Commandments, and I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, first of all, you don't keep the Ten Commandments. Maybe you never murdered anybody, but you've broken almost every other one. And we could take time to talk about how that happens. But the rest of the story is the Bible says you can't, and you will not, and you don't keep the commandments. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, everybody has sinned. No one has kept the standard of the law of the Bible. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says there's not one person righteous. No one. We're told In Romans 3.20. Therefore, because of that reality, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Someone persists to protest. But I keep the Ten Commandments. I do the best I can. I've never hurt anybody. I don't uh, consciously do anything wrong. Friend, when you go and you look at where the Ten Commandments are located in the Bible, there is nowhere in that text or in the greater context that it ever even talks about heaven. That's because there was never any sense of keeping commandments and squaring your life with God and going to heaven. There was never any sense to that. There was never any connection to that. The entire purpose of the law and the commandments are to show us how we never can meet God's standard. That's the purpose of it. To say you can't do it. It's hopeless on your own. So, we not only don't know what the standard is, can't keep the standard, we don't know how the grade is decided. You have to be 51% good, 75% good, 90% good. And who determines those percentages? And when does it start? In school, grades don't start counting until the ninth grade. When does it start? (laughs) That God starts keeping account for how, you know, life is going. Surely it wouldn't be before age six. Surely it wouldn't be during adolescence. Wait till after that, hopefully. So we don't even know about these things. And and like we have said before, it's kind of like somebody that enters a race 
and he steps up to the starting line, which is clear, and the, the race starter is about to pop the gun, and, and the runner says, oh, wait a minute, there are no lines here for us to run in on the race. How do we know where to go? Well, we'll tell you along the way. Well, how do we know how far it is? Oh, you'll find out along the way. Well, how do we know where the finish line is? Well, when you cross it, we'll let you know. I mean, nobody would enter a race like that. It's crazy. You know, the gun pops and 100 people go a dozen different ways. It's, it's, it's nuts. And so the good enough theory, friends, and I, I spent weeks on this a few months ago, and so I'm just briefly reminding us, the good enough theory is bad theory. It's something that we came up with, people came up with. God didn't come up with it. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't work, and it leads us in wrong directions and in wrong ways. The reality is you're blind, and you must receive sight. That's the reality. When you're born the first time, and you have these physical capabilities... You are dead spiritually, and you do not have those spiritual capabilities. And you must be born a second time. You must be born in Christ. You must have His Spirit come dwell in you by faith so that He causes you to be alive spiritually and have these capacities. Now, how does all that take place? The reason we are dead and remain dead is because of sin. Every person is a sinner. Every person cannot overcome their sin. We just keep doing it. And because God is holy and just, He must judge sin. So, here's the deal. You go at life on your own. On the day of accountability, you pay for the price of your sins. Which means you remain condemned and all eternity is spent separated from God. Or, on the day of accountability, you stand before the judge and Jesus pays for your sins. You're declared not guilty. You're justified and made right before God. You're given Life with God forever from that point on because of what Jesus did on the cross. His suffering on the cross, his death on the cross paid the price. And anyone that believes that and by faith receives that and builds their life on that, he says, will be saved. Romans ten thirteen. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, friend, if that stirs you right now and you go, whoa, really? That is God's Spirit graciously dealing with you, inviting you to say yes to Him. We're told in John 14, 6, Jesus is it. He's the way. We're told in John 3.16, whoever will believe in Jesus will have eternal life. Do you believe? Not believe to the point where you, like this chair, say, I believe it can hold me up. 
I confess to everybody it can hold me up. You don't believe me? See how that can hold me up? Now, faith says, this can hold me up. I've placed my life in Christ. I don't just lean on him a little bit. I don't just look in his way, tip my hat, nod a little faith commentary. You know, he, he, yeah, he's a... I bank, I bet my life on him. There's only one thing you must know. Now, are there a lot of other things to know? Yeah, they have some level of importance. But there's only one that you really have to know. That you were blind. And that now you see. You say, well, Scott, I've been around, you know, some worship gatherings like this. I've attended some churches. I've heard some stuff like this. You know, I've even... Like, responded to an altar call before. I filled out one of the cards you asked me to fill out saying, you know, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. And, you know, I, I, I've done some things in the past where I thought I kind of squared that up, but I still don't know. You keep using the word no like it's something that can happen for certain. Well, the Apostle John said in one of his letters to early believers... Everything that I've been writing to you is so that those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. Friends, this is something that you can know. It's not a guessing game. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a hope, a hope, a hope, a hope. It's it's not a someday I just hope I make the grade and God curves and I got more good than bad. That won't cut it. It's a faith bet. He's the way or he's not. If he's the way, I bet my life on him. And when I do, my blindness is touched and I'm able to see and all of life just like the blind man all of life is different from that point on that man's life was never the same after he got his sight and neither is yours when you get your sight So, some of us that are in Christ, we have a sense of confidence about that. We know that to such an extent. I am more confident in my relationship with Christ than I am that these walls and this floor can hold up this building around us. Is that where you are? If that's where you are, then today 
is an opportunity and a moment for you to worship God because of His salvation. And that's what we've been doing this entire service. Jerry's giving you the scriptures. He's giving you the songs. He's giving you the process to just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're awesome. You're unbelievable. You're gracious. You're full of grace. I don't deserve it. You've been so good. You've been good beyond the description of words. If that's where you are, then that's what this hour has been for you. To be able to say that with all your heart to the King of kings and Lord of lords. If that is not where you are, then this hour has been a divine appointment for you to walk into the gate of relationship with Him as He's stirring you to do right now. And so, I ask you, will you? Will you trust in Jesus? Place your life in Him. Bet it all on Him. Look to have your entire life oriented around Him so that He can forgive you, save you from your sin. Will you identify with Jesus by being publicly baptized. One of the reasons that baptism here is so exciting to the people that watch it is because of what it signifies. Not the fact that somebody gets wet. The fact that somebody's come from death to life. Blindness to sight. From a self-life to a Jesus life. Will you trust Him? Will you publicly identify with Him by being baptized? And will you commit to Him as a disciple through membership here in this church? So let me tell you a little bit about what this church is about. Understanding the realities of what we've talked about today that everyone who has the first life, physical life, also needs a second life, a spiritual life. We have tried to create a place where spiritually dead, blind people can come in and safely pursue God, find God, connect with God. And one of the ways that we do that is we offer you friendship. We offer you care. We offer you our hearts. And so if you walk into this place and you go, gosh, it feels kind of warm. I feel wanted. And after a while you feel like you belong. Friend, that's all intentional. We want you to feel like you belong. God cares about you. We care about you. And it's in that context that we're hoping that blind people are connecting, belonging enough so you can draw near to God. When that time happens, that you connect, that you have faith and trust Him, and you begin to do a walk with Him, then the next step, friend, is for you to be a full-blown disciple that says, I'm going to be committed to this body. And I'm going to receive the commitment of this body to myself. This is going to be a place where I know you and you're going to know me. 
I'm going to invest my life. We're going to do the mission of Christ together. We're going to continue to be an embracing, inviting, compassionate, caring people for those who are blind. I believe in what Jesus is doing here. I'm going to give not only my time. I'm not only going to give my talents. I'm going to give my treasures here. I am a part of what God's doing here. And so, friend, will you take that step? Trust Him. Identify with Him. Commit to Him. Let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, what a pregnant hour. We have just sensed how you are giving birth to someone's faith right now. And we pray for that friend that they will rest in your grace, step into your into trusting you. And be cleansed and forgiven and saved. And for others of us, we just give thanks for the unspeakable treasure and privilege that's ours to know you. It's in the mighty, awesome, wonderful, blessed name of Jesus we pray.